0: If there's anything that has come out over these past few weeks as we've continued our study of 1 Peter and looked at the reality of persecution, it is that we live in difficult times for the church, for the follower of Christ. Though we here in the United States may not face the outlaw of Christianity, as is the case in some countries today, And we don't really fear arrest for our faith or destruction of buildings because it happens to be a church. Nevertheless, we still live in a time in which the source of those realities for Christians all around the world is the same source of difficulty for us. Ultimately, it is the rejection, the disregard and hatred of Jesus Christ. It is the desire to reject the gospel, to suppress the truth and to live for self. This fleshes out in what we see in society, a general rise in immorality, a falling of church attendance, an ignorance of the things of God, and a growing love of self. In particular, nothing highlights all of this more than the direct persecution of Christians. Again, a topic we have been discussing in First Peter for several weeks now. Now, though we look forward to Christ's return when all of this will end, we don't know the exact date of it. It is hidden from us on purpose by God. But we do know this. We are closer today than we were yesterday. And with each passing day, the scriptures tell us that not only does the return of Christ draw near, but the scriptures, in other words, a promise from God is that. Things in society will only get worse. People will be further from God. People will practice more immorality in a more public and open way. And there are even things that God condemns that will be declared by the Supreme Court as good and right. You see this. Even if you're in your mid-20s or your early 30s, you have seen this pattern in your own lifetime. So what do we do? Well, for one thing, as a church... We stick together. We help each other out. Not to the neglect of the world, but we can't be so focused on things like evangelism and testimony to unbelievers that we neglect each other, that we neglect other believers, especially as Christ's return draws nigh, and especially with how things are going in the present day. And that's why this morning as well as next Sunday... I want to give you in our passage five present day priorities, five priorities to practice today, right now, 2019 to 2020, 2020. Sorry to say it. It's right around the corner. Five present day priorities for the Christian, for the Christian church, for the believer. And we'll find these in first Peter, chapter four, verses seven through eleven. And I'd invite you to turn there. or Click there with me right now. First Peter, chapter four verses 7 through 11, and if you are not familiar with uh, our church, we practice expository preaching, which among other things means that we study the Bible verse by verse, if not word by word. First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Peter writes, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, Keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Five present day priorities. In other words, considering the times and the overall challenges to and for the church, we as every Christian, not a church as a whole, this is talking to you, individual believer, we must each pursue these priorities. These Christian duties, if you will, keeping in mind that the backdrop for everything that we're going to look at in these five priorities, the context is persecution of Christians. In fact, I was jokingly tempted to title this sermon, The Christian Duty When Treated Like Duty. The Christian duties in the midst of difficulty and persecution. Five present day priorities. Number one. The imminent motivation, the imminent motivation. The first phrase of verse seven says the end of all things is near. Now, this first priority, I'll be the first to admit it, doesn't really fit in the outline in the sense that it is not so much something we pursue. It's not something we do. There's there's no command here. But it is the reason or the motivation Peter gives us to pursue and perform the Christian life and all the following privileges we will talk about. Last time, last week when we were together, we looked at Peter's encouragement or warning, depending on what side of God's grace you stand, regarding future judgment. And this is not the judgment when someone dies But the ultimate final judgment at the great white throne, which is described as such in Revelation chapter 20. This judgment is part of the end times is what we call it. The end of all things that Peter refers to here. And what's encouraging to us is not that everything will cease to be because the word end here. Does not necessarily mean in the Greek cessation or termination or even a a chronological conclusion to something. In the context here, Peter is speaking of a fulfillment. The plan of God since the beginning will finally be fulfilled. The goal has been achieved. The consummation, if you will, of all things is at hand. In other words, it is imminent. It can happen at any moment. You're familiar with that word imminent. It draws a feeling or a response that is like, be ready at any time. It can happen, right? Like like an earthquake for us Californians. It's imminent. We don't know when it'll happen. It'll just happen. Be prepared. And this is a simple reminder from Peter that the end is simply not too far off. And to help you understand this, we... Today, in 2019, we are living in the last days. I'm not, I'm not trying to be one of those guys on the street corner in Union Square, you know, the end is nigh or whatever. When you look at the scriptures, we are technically in the last days. Because the last days in God's plan, in God's chronology, was inaugurated, was initiated by the coming of Jesus to earth at the nativity. That began the last days. The end then is near because this this part of history, this part of God's plan has already begun. Now it may occur to you that probably for your whole Christian life and perhaps even before then, Christians and pastors and other people have been telling you Christ is coming again soon. Christ is coming again soon. We read in scripture, we just have, that the end is near, Christ is coming again soon. And maybe you don't really feel that imminency, that urgency, because let's be honest, even Peter, what we're reading here, wrote this 2,000 years ago. So you can imagine these ancient Asians reading this and saying, oh, it's going to happen within our lifetime, not only in their lifetime, so as on their dying, as they take their dying dying breath, they warn their kids and their grandkids, and still, Christ has not come. It's been 2,000 years since the first coming of Christ. And it can be tempting to take this fact and sit back, This fact, rather, and sit back and say that clearly, okay, it's nearer because time keeps going, but come on, it's been 2,000 years. What's to say it's not another 2,000 years? You put yourself in the sandals of these first readers and it's like, how long did they wait? Well, they couldn't wait any longer because they're dead. But I think it helps to remember a couple things despite the fact that it's been 2,000 years to help us realize that indeed it is near. The first thing to remember is we shouldn't just view the time frame of the beginning and the end as the, the church age and then Christ's future return is what the end is. We need to understand that the end of all things is the end of God's plan. Yes, this phase of the plan was inaugurated 2000 years ago, but this was his plan all along since the Garden of Eden and before then in eternity past. So it's been way more than 2,000 years. In fact, in the history of mankind, it has been just a minority portion of that. And regardless, regardless, this needs to be paired with the second thing I want to remember, which is that the imminence of Christ's return, the prediction of future things in the New Testament, is always used for believers as an encouragement. This is not a warning for us. It is not some sort of killjoy. And I really hope if you're a believer this morning, you don't see it as such. As believers, we long for it. We look forward to it. We want it sooner than later. Why? For the very reason that Peter is reminding these first readers who are undergoing serious persecution that the end is near. It is a comfort. It is an encouragement. No matter how hard life may be, whether it's direct persecution which, let's be honest, frankly, probably isn't the case if you live in America, even if you live in California. But life is tough, right? You battle with sin. You battle with difficulties. You battle with paying the bills and going to work every day. And so the end is soon. The perfect fellowship we are, we are supposed to have in the Garden of Eden with, with God is coming soon. And so it's an encouragement, and so when we say that Christ is coming again soon, we must trust the veracity of the Bible, but also see comfort in it. You know, we don't know the time. Even Jesus in his self-imposed limitation says, I don't know the time. The Father knows. He hasn't revealed it to me. Jesus said, it's not for me to know. And so it's, it's, it's you know, I, I get it. We think in, in time, right? Right? When when does church start? When does when when does probably more importantly for most of you when does lunch begin? Right? That's okay. I get it. Me too. You know when when is work? What time do I have to be there? We think of this. How many days till vacation? How many days till the first day of school? But you have to understand. We just need to trust the Lord. His timing is perfect. My my two younger boys of the three have a very limited concept of time. Uh, for my youngest who's 3 years old everything was yesterday right we did something a month ago he remembers with great detail what happened remember that time when that person gave us the coins and we put it in that machine right we're at a bowling alley and we didn't have enough coins for the little little uh, gumball machine thing and some nice elderly gentleman gave us he remembered the details of everything it's like a month ago but he said remember yesterday when we did this they have no concept of time they're not encouraged By the number of hours or day, I say, until that fun activity, until vacation. But they are encouraged by the fact that I say, son, don't worry, it's coming soon. And in the same way, we must submit to and trust God that he doesn't want us to know the exact date. But we are to hope and we are to find joy in knowing that it is coming soon. And this leads us to our remaining priorities. Remember that this first one is the motivation. It is the imminent motivation for all the other duties or priorities as indicated by the next word in the verse. Therefore. the end of all things is coming soon. Therefore, the end of all things is imminent. Therefore, because the end of all things is near. Do this. Do what? Our second present day priority. The holy disposition. The holy disposition. In the rest of verse seven, we read this. Be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Uh, These two characteristics, sound judgment and sober spirit, are very important for the Christian. We're called to live this way in other New Testament passages, but here Peter tells us a specific purpose. It's not the only purpose, but in this context, The purpose is for prayer. Let me unpack these characteristics for you. That phrase, sound judgment, literally means be in one's right mind. The ESV and NIV have a very uh, fitting uh, translation, which is self-controlled. Be of sound mind. It simply means to have a cool head, a level head, a balanced mind, so you can exercise self-control and moderation. And maybe you've heard this, this phrase in, in English, which is fitting as well. Maintaining a sense of proportion or balance. So for the Christian, this means holiness, pursuing the things of God. And a lot of this would, for the Christian, for all people, but especially for the Christian, because we are called to this, we have the ability to do this, Being uh, having sound judgment, rather, would include... Not having an inflated view of yourself. That is key. Humility is key to having a cool head, a right mind, right? Think about it. Why do you get angry? Because you were offended. Someone didn't do something you wanted. Things are not done the right way according to your way of doing things. Why do you get impatient? You want to be there, right? Why do you you sin? Because you think it's okay for you to partake in that indulgence or whatever it may be. Why do you get drunk? You want to forget. You want to fit in. In fact, turn to Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. And it uses the same Greek word here, sound judgment. Verse 3 of Romans 12, Paul writes this. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, Not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have, here it is, same term, sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And so you see that. He contrasts having an inflated view of yourself and sound judgment. And he reminds us, look, just because you're a pastor or because you're gifted in music or whatever it means, because you're a more mature Christian, you know the scriptures better, you've been introduced to good materials where others haven't, that doesn't make you better. Have sound judgment. Don't have an inflated view of yourself because God has gifted everyone appropriately. God has given everyone the right measure of faith. And we're going to see that more uh, next week when we look at what Christian spiritual service looks like. Back in 1 Peter 4. So sound judgment also involves having your emotions, your passions in check. In the immediate context of which what Peter is writing, let me put it this way. Don't let the fact that Christ's return is coming soon lead you, Christian, to being so excited, especially remember these people that he's writing to were getting beaten up for their faith, Don't get so excited that he's coming, vengeance is coming, persecution is ending, that you fail to do what you need to be doing. Still submit to the unbelieving husband. Still submit to the the slave owner who is beating you because of your faith. Don't get so excited that you say, oh, you're going to get yours and stand up and huff and puff and fight back. No. We need to keep our emotions in check, not just for Christ's return, but in all things. I tell my kids this all the time. When they get frustrated at us or they get angry at each other, you parents know, self-control, guys. Calm down. Have self-control. Right? Don't hit. Don't shove. But I also remind them, you also need to practice self-control and perhaps think about it even more so when you're excited. Right? Right? When when vacation is coming or whatever, they're so happy that they get out of control, they get goofy, they start throwing things because they're actually happy. So it's not just sad emotion, the emotions of sadness, but even happiness. Be self controlled. He also says be sober. Be sober. Have sound judgment, also be sober. Uh, This means to have a clear head. The NIV or ESV say clear or sober minded. For the Christian to have a clear head when you bring in the scriptures, it means to be spiritually observant. Know what's going on. Be self-aware. Now, technically, of course, as it is in our language, this word is the opposite of not being drunk. But understand that he's talking about more than don't get drunk with alcohol, more than just physical intoxication which is also prohibited, which uh, also involves any sort of uh, drugs as well, by the way. But we're talking about being spiritually sober-minded. There are spiritual and emotional means of being intoxicated. In the sense like being drunk physically, your mind gets cloudy, Right. Your level of discernment falters. And this could be, again, uh, based on good or bad things when you're angry and sad or when you're happy and overjoyed. Right. You can have a cloudy thinking after something bad or something good after a breakup with a girlfriend before clocking out on Friday. Bad and good. You can be, you know, not be have clear judgment when you're having fun with your Christian friends or because you lack sleep. It can be bad or good, big or small. We need to be careful. Or more to Peter's point, in the midst of persecution or the anticipation of your Lord's return, don't overdo it. Be clear-headed. Calm down. Self-control. And we need to do what's necessary as believers to keep our minds alert or clear so that we avoid that fuzzy thinking we get when we're not clear-headed. I mean, this can be something as simple as turning off the TV or getting more sleep. Or maybe those two are the same thing for some of you late night TV watchers. Or it could be something more profound, like fixing your lack of time in God's word or repenting of a habitual sin. All of these things could lead to not being clear headed. And if you pursue these two things, sound judgment and sober, sober minded, you do so by having a realistic view of God and the world while keeping your response to those things in check. Then, Peter says, you can turn to prayer. Now, understand that he's not saying we don't pray until we have these attitudes mastered. That's not true. I mean, if you don't have these mastered, even more so you need to pray for them. But what Peter is saying is, is that prayer is a, is a motivation to get these attitudes, Master, to pursue clear-headedness, sound judgment. Because when you grow in those areas, the result will not only be an increased awareness of your need for prayer, but will also result, result in more biblical or more uh, profound God-honoring prayer. Let me explain. Prayer is talking to God, if I could put it in simple terms. Prayer is talking to God. All these spiritual resources we are promised that are given to us just because we're Christians, but many of which God says, ask for them. You don't have them because you don't ask. Prayer is a way to access all the spiritual resources that God has promised us. And it submits to God because in your sound judgment and sober spirit, you will begin to see everything from God's perspective with a biblical worldview. And when this happens, you will be driven to prayer for guidance, for power and help, regardless of how evil the world may be or how poorly it may be treating you. You see, this is this is fundamental Right. You say, well, it's in my weakest point that I pray the most, maybe for relief from that trial. But who prays the most? Those who are doing better spiritually because they have a deeper relationship with God. Right. Who, who, you know, back in, in school, who was the one who stayed after to talk to the professor or the teacher all the time? the one who feels more comfortable with the teacher, but also because they're more comfortable, they realize that this professor is a source of knowledge. And because they realize the professor is such a source of wealth of knowledge, they realize how little they know as they talk to them. This is prayer. The closer you are to him, the more you're going to realize you need to get even closer and talk to him even more because you realize how little you know. And this kind of prayer... I'm talking about depth as well as the awareness of the need for prayer. This kind of prayer will not exist if your minds are unstable due to worldly pursuits. It will not exist without a love of God's word and an understanding of his truth. It will not exist with an indifference to the will and desires of God. So, pray deeply. Pursue sound judgment. Pursue a sober spirit. In other words, pursue holiness. Look, God is not calling in this verse believers to some sort of radical Christianity. He's not saying, hey, turn it up to 10 because I'm coming again soon. What he's calling us to is normal, holy behavior befitting of a follower of Christ. Now, note If you were to truly follow the scriptures, this kind of normal Christian behavior would be considered extreme by many, even many in the church. But this is normal Christianity. Uh, You say, wow, those guys who just go out on the mission field and, and they don't care. They're willing to die. They're willing to sacrifice everything financially, emotionally, family for the sake of Christ. That's radical Christianity. No, that's normal Christianity. Not that you all should go out on the mission field, but you all should be bold. You all should be willing to sacrifice. You all should be sacrificing. You all should be seeing God as more important even than that little baby you're holding in your hands that's only a week old. Do you get this? You see, that's not average Christianity because we as Christians have fallen way, way short, especially here in America. It should be average Christianity. What's above average Christianity? That shouldn't exist. What we now define as radical Christianity, the Jim Elliot's of the world, the Charles Spurgeon's of the world, that should be just normal, everyday Christianity. Maybe you're not a great preacher. Maybe you won't be the prince of preachers. Maybe you won't die as a martyr for, the, for, the, for God. But you definitely shouldn't keep, keep keeping quiet at work about Christ. You definitely shouldn't just keep praying and praying and praying for your dad's salvation and never speaking the gospel to him. And you shouldn't be on your best behavior on Sunday mornings at church because this is the place where you're with family and you should let yourself go and your kindness and grace should shine forth in the rest of the world. This should be normal Christianity. In the context, I, for one, am thankful that we do not know the day of Christ's return, for many reasons. But one of them is the reality reality that we as Christians, in our sin, have a tendency towards laziness, comfort, and self-service. And when these three attributes... Laziness, comfort, and self-service relate to tasks, things that need to be done. They fuse together to form this ungodly vice called procrastination. I believe that if the church knew exactly that Jesus was coming in exactly 50 years, September 1st, 2069 at 2 p.m., it would be tempting... To just hang out for the next 40 years and then do hard ministry in the last 10 or better yet, 50 years. Let's just train up the next generation and they can do it. They can go out on the mission field. They can go preach the gospel. It's too hard right now with Putin and a lot of the radical Islamic countries and Trump. Let's just wait till it kind of. But we know it's not going to get better. It's going to get more evil, more immoral. And so I don't know the mind of God, but I would guess this is one reason he doesn't tell us the date, because we would just be lazy and procrastinate. We laugh and joke and perhaps get angry, but it is true, that bumper sticker that kind of mocks us. Jesus is coming, look busy. I think if we knew the date, that's what we would do. Right, Oh man, ooh, he's coming this year. Now, let me start evangelizing, let me start preaching. Let me get my life right. Let me get rid of this relationship and pursue this relationship. Let me find a church, whatever it may be. We are to have this holy disposition now, today. Peter is calling us for a constant holiness, not a procrastinated future holiness. But let me give you a third. We're only going to look at four or five this morning. These next two are quicker. The third present day priority is the ultimate pursuit. The ultimate pursuit. Verse 8. Above all, ultimate, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Peter calls love the highest priority by introducing it with the words above all. Then... He further emphasizes it by not just saying love, but keep fervent in your love. The word fervent means strenuous, intense. You ever, you ever seen these, uh, you know, technology has gone pretty far now. And so it's sometimes on Facebook, wherever you see these pictures, they say, you know, these, uh, these photographers for the news or Sports Illustrated, they get the picture at just the right moment. And these athletes, their faces are contorted. And if you look closely, their muscles look like they're about to explode. And this is what that word fervent means. It's the picture of an athlete straining and stretching every single muscle in his body to win the prize. You guys ever like ran track or played football in high school or college? And, you know, you're working out and you're practicing, but it's the big game and you push yourself so hard. And people are like, man, you must be sore. And you're like, my fingers are sore because you're just straining everything to win. And here's the thing with the word fervent as it relates to the athlete and love. It doesn't matter how hard it hurts. It doesn't matter if people are cheering in the crowds or if they're booing in the crowds. All the athlete cares about is the goal. And in the same way, we are to love one another fervently as a top priority. No matter how much it hurts, no matter if those we are to love, accept it, or reject it, this is agape love, that Greek word. Agape love is unconditional, but it is also volitional. Don't buy into the Hollywood lie. It is not an emotion that comes and goes. You can't just fall out of love. You choose not to love. It is a choice and it is unconditional. It is not sentimental, which is why it takes every muscle to achieve. If it was just sentimental, then you wouldn't have to really do anything. But those of you who are married here this morning know love is hard work. It's difficult. It's hard work. You strain every muscle. For the sake of time today, I want to commend to you my sermon on biblical love from 1 Corinthians thirteen one through 7 It's online on our website. You know I don't do this often, but it is so important I want to mention it. 1 Corinthians thirteen one through 7 the title was Worthy or Worthless, and I preached it on December sixth, two 2015. You can find it on our website. The week before I preached this sermon, I told the church, come back next week. Because I will preach to you the most important sermon you will ever hear me preach if you are a Christian. If you're not a Christian, it's not because the most important sermon would be the gospel. But if you are a Christian... My explaining to you what biblical love is, no matter if you stay in this church and you find every sermon I've ever preached in my life, you stay in this church until the day I die, you will never, as a Christian, hear me preach a more important sermon because that is the most important thing that we are to pursue. Christ said it. Peter repeated it. Paul parroted it. Ultimately, pursue, above all, love. So please, if you have never heard an exposition of what true biblical love is, find one. If you can't find one, I commend mine to you. It is the most important sermon you as a Christian will ever hear me preach. I still believe that right now. Love is so important. And we need to know what it is because there is so many mixed views of what love is because of what we've been told our whole lives. Because of maybe, uh, you know, fighting parents I got a divorce and still said, but we mommy and daddy still love each other. And so you're all confused. And of course, especially because of rom-coms and, and TV shows and they totally butcher love. Know what love is and what we are to pursue. The significance of love in the church is seen all the more in the reason Peter gives for us loving one another this way, Yes, we are called to love all men, yes, we are to call to love unbelievers and our enemies. Peter here is talking about Christians loving other Christians, and it is because love covers a multitude of sin. It is not clear here if paul is or excuse me, Peter is talking about christ 's love covers our sins or whether he is telling us that in the same way our love covers the sins of others. Both are true. We just don't know which one he's specifically talking about. So we just take this as a general axiom. It's found elsewhere in the New Testament. It does apply to both God's love and our sin, as well as our love and others' sin. And the idea of covering sin is not that we hush it up, not that we condone it, Not that we say, oh, it's okay that you did that. It's not okay, right? They need to repent. They need to make amends. But what this is speaking of is grace. This is speaking of being quick to forgive or forgiving at some point. This is talking about helping others. Again, don't misdefine love. Oh, love covers the multitude of sins, so I should just forgive them and move on. No, if you understand biblical love, that also means confronting. That also means repairing, helping them repair a relationship with God by rebuking, by telling them indeed what they are doing wrong. Because ultimately, biblical love is not about their happiness, which is what worldly love is. It is about their thriving and healthy relationship with God. As your pastor, I care more about you, excuse me, as your brother in Christ. I care more about your relationship with God than I care about you liking me, than I care about your happiness, than, frankly, I care, care about your feelings. And so should you when it comes to me. That's what matters most, God's glory. So it speaks of grace, forgiveness, and help. Remember the love that led to, sh- to blood shed to wash away your sin. That is what we are to emulate. This passage is probably uh, coming from Proverbs 10:12, which says hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgression. Same same idea. And in Proverbs, as well as first Peter, we're not just talking about direct sins against us. Right. Love covers the fact that he yelled at me or he stole from me or whatever it may be. It could be any sin, even indirectly, that just annoy us or bother us. Love covers all of that. And in the context, how much more important that we as the church, as Christians, are forgiving each other in light of the church being a light in a harsh and dying world. I don't know how this works, so electrical engineers, please forgive me. Could you imagine lighting up your room with a couple light bulbs and little atoms or whatever that glow aren't getting along? No, I'm not going to do it. You forgive first. You forgive. I'm not going to light up till you light up. He doesn't do it. I'm going to light halfway. Why is this light bulb flickering? Why is not lighting up the dark? A broken light doesn't light up the dark. In fact, it's just dim and looks like everyone else. We need to love because love covers a multitude of sins. Let me give you a fourth present-day priority. We've seen the imminent motivation, the holy disposition, the ultimate pursuit. And fourthly, and we'll look at the fifth next week, fourthly, the joyful generosity. The joyful generosity. Verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. If you think sometimes, you know, people come to church and they're like, you know what, pastor, you can preach to me. You can address my behavior on Sunday morning. Maybe you can address how my kids misbehave. You can get in my life, but stay out of my house. I'm about to go in your house because this is what Peter's doing. One of the most practical ways the early church could show love toward one another was hospitality, letting people stay in their homes. This word literally means loving strangers or entertaining strangers. The key word for us there is strangers, and I'll get to that in a minute. 2,000 years ago in the ancient world, if you were an ordinary person, in other words, you weren't royalty, You weren't super powerful and very uh, wealthy. You were an ordinary person. There was really no network of decent hotels or other suitable accommodations that could take care of travelers. There's, you know, there was no Hyatt Hilton. There's no internet. There's no apps to just book a room. So the hospitality of friends or more likely strangers was much more value than it is today. In the early church, they didn't even own church buildings where they could even say, hey, you can crash on the pews, just be out before service starts. Right? They didn't even have that. So Christians were called to house these travelers, which was a great way to exhibit biblical love. And what I mean by that is they were to take this love beyond their circle of friends beyond their local church, beyond people they even knew, and extend it to other Christians that were strangers. Now, keep in mind, this would happen without prior notice. They would not phone. They would not send a letter ahead of time. They would just knock. People in the town square said, you are a follower of Jesus Christ or a Follow the little Jesus fish written on the, on the walls and dirt. So I believe you are a born-again Christian. I know we've never met, but I'd like to stay at your house for two or three nights while I conduct business. Open the door, let them in. Just show up, knock on the house, you let them in and house them. Probably also helpful for you to know and probably also convicting for you to know that these were not people with guest bedrooms in their little homes. These were not really people who had bedrooms at all. Most people would just sleep in the one room they would have all together on the floor. And so there you are with your kids where the kitchen table was earlier, and here's this stranger shoulder to shoulder with you on a mat on your floor. And... In case you are relieved at this point that you do have an empty guest room, know that hospitality goes beyond just room and board. In other words, in layman's terms, beyond a bed and food. They would need rest, not just physical rest, not just the bed, but spiritual and emotional rest. They would need encouragement. They would need to be emotionally and spiritually refreshed. They would need perhaps your last loaf of bread for the rest of their journey, your last flask of clean water or wine or whatever it may be. And the reality is hospitality, even when, when hosting other Christians can be very demanding. It can be very difficult. You have to put your life on hold. You gotta spend more money on things. You gotta clear that, that uh, storage room, that, that sewing room, that workout room or whatever it may be that's your extra bedroom. I think it's even more difficult than demanding in our ever-increasing private and entitled world. We hardly, as Christians, want people to come over for dinner, let alone stay a few days unannounced. But this is what we are called to do. Yes, we live in a different culture. I am not I am not saying just let whoever comes in to, to hang out and sleep in your kid's room while your kids are there. There is discretion and discernment. The idea is having a heart of hospitality for other Christians. And frankly, with the network of hotels and the reality that most Christians would not just show up and say, let me stay at your house for a few days. There is enough just in this room of people's needs who need a place to crash, who need a helping hand, who need some encouragement, who are weeping because of a trial. We have single people who would rather not be home alone because of temptations at night on their computer or because of a bad situation and they want someone to stay with but they're scared to ask because hey, we're Americans and we just don't do that. We need to have a heart of hospitality. Husband, wife, if you find yourself arguing, debating, rebuking, finding scriptures to, to convince your Christian spouse just to let some of the young people come over for dinner, there is a problem. A bigger problem in your marriage, most likely, but also a problem with your heart of hospitality. This is what we are called to do. You may not have opportunity But you must have the heart and the willingness because this is love. This is love. You say, yeah, but these people are loud. Eh, Love covers a multitude of sins. And so what do you mean by the right heart and willingness? Not just, okay, we'll open our doors. But he goes on to say, without complaint. No mumbling. No grumbling, no gossip or the like. Hey, how was it having those people over? Oh, it's great, but man, you know, we were trying to sleep, and he just doesn't respect our time, and he ate all our... Nope, that's not the right heart. It's not that in the ancient world people would always be polite and grateful when they came over. They they would complain about your house. They would eat all your food. They would overstay their welcome. And the reality is with hospitality, as it is with love in general, people can abuse your generosity. Christians may criticize it. They may be ungrateful. But we are to do it without complaint, which refers to the heart attitude. And it doesn't just mean keeping quiet like, oh, not going to gossip, not going to tell you what they did, not going to tell you what they did to our bathroom or whatever it may be. The heart attitude, you don't even think that. Right. Oh, man. And not in a fake way, but here's a test. Is it like, are you kidding me? This is disgusting. Or, ah, poor guy. He must have been so tired he didn't have time to clean up or he didn't have time to flush the toilet or whatever it may be. Hospitality without complaint. Can I give you an extra point here? How many of you, especially in light of looking at the rest of the world and uh, or, or looking at ancient days, right, the early church, how many of you are thankful that we have the Christian church the way it is today in modern era? Nobody? I'm going to assume you're all, raise your hands. Okay. Uh, how many of you are thankful for the New Testament? Okay, the example of the early church. How many of you think that we would have the New Testament in our hands? God's sovereignty aside, I'm making a point here. Or even the thriving early church to become the church today 2,000 years ago if Christians did not house people like Barnabas, people like Peter, people like Paul on their missionary journeys. No, I heard from the people in the other town how, how much you messed up their house, Paul. You don't even sleep. We can't even sleep. We're trying to sleep here. You're sitting here praying all night. We're not going to do it. You know, you're moaning and groaning because your wounds hurt from the last time you are beat up for the gospel. We can't have you in our house. The kids have school in the morning. They need to sleep. Shut down. No missionary journeys. No New Testament. No early church. Now, of course, God wouldn't have allowed that to happen. But you get my point. Now, I'm not going to be all Weird and super spiritual, like the next person you house may be the the next R.C. Sprawl, the next John MacArthur. No, it just may be some other Christian that's bumbling his way through this Christian life, just like we are. But like with all things, it's not just about oh, yeah, oh I feel good about myself. I saved this guy some money on hotels. I gave him some food. I introduced him to Boba, which he's never had before. I just say that's one of my highlights for people not from around here. Anyways, it's about. Honoring God, right? And again, it's the heart attitude. God knows. God looks at the heart. You know, I wish I could house more people. No one wants to come. No one, you know, they, uh, no one's ever asked. Get the heart right. It doesn't matter if it happens or not, right? It's like evangelism. It doesn't matter if people, uh, people get saved or not. That's not your job. What matters is you share the gospel. Glorify God with the right heart attitude and obedience, Anyways, five or four of the five present-day priorities. We've seen the imminent motivation, the holy disposition, the ultimate pursuit, and the joyful generosity. I'm going to pray now, and we're going to go into time of communion, the Lord's table. And I'll say a few more words about what we just looked at. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to look into your word to see the example of Peter in the early church that despite having lives physically and emotionally that were much more difficult than ours to be passionate about pursuing love and hospitality. Father, I pray that we wouldn't be so influenced by our society, that we are private, we are selfish and entitled, that we don't want to love, we don't want to forgive sins, we don't want to... Be hospitable. We want, but in the back of our minds, hope that you'll return a little later so we can fulfill our earthly goals or even our evangelistic goals. Lord, help us just to have the right heart, the right mentality. Help us to be the kind of Christian that so many consider radical Christianity, but in reality is just obedience. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.